who wants to open in a word of prayer for us this morning? I will. Okay, go ahead. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. We are actually in awe that you welcome us into your presence so so easily that your Holy Spirit is delighted to have this time in our lives instructing us as Ray speaks. Father, I thank you that you have left these words for us that are not just nice, noble thoughts to crochet or embroider or whatever one does with them, but they are actually uh, precepts to carry in our heart, to guide our living, to guide the way we walk, to guide the way we think, the way we talk. Father, uh, thank you that we live in a time when we will be having increasing opportunity to live according to your words as Paul had to live in first century Rome. And so, Lord, I pray that you will be instructing our hearts. I pray that you will be, your Holy Spirit will be leading us and really storing up these words so that they are available whenever we need them. We thank you. We praise you, Father, that you equip your children continually. You do not leave us without a direction to go. We praise you, we thank you, and we ask you to guide Ray's speaking and uh, guide our thoughts this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son who made it possible. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's talk about Romans chapter 12. Now, we're living in our country. There's a lot of parallels between what was going on in the first century with uh, not only the Roman people, but People throughout the Roman Empire, they were facing similar situations. When we complete chapter 12, what I'd like to do is just give you a brief introduction to chapter 13, and we'll concentrate on our relationship to broadly to society, but more specifically the first few verses to government itself. I think it's timely that uh, this topic comes up at this time, but Before we take a look at that, we need to look at uh, what we left, where we left off last time in chapter 12. And it's probably good to review some of these things because they're not, they're not easy to live by. They're not difficult to understand the texts. There are not a lot of problems in the text and it's not a complicated passage. These exhortations are pretty straightforward So the problem is not understanding, the problem is actually living them out. And last time I stressed that it takes supernatural enablement to do virtually anything in the Christian life, but particularly these things that we have in the biblical text. And just quick reminder, how do we uh, bless those who persecute you? And how do we bless and not curse, especially when you're in the middle of a confrontation? It's not an easy thing to reorient your thinking, not easy to uh, respond in the way that God would have us to respond. But in some cases, the the Romans faced far more severe things than uh, we probably will ever face. Some of them even were martyred. So, That's something of uh, what we'll look at today. And the theme from beginning, actually, in verse 9, the theme throughout is the theme of love. So it's in this context we've been developing that concept, and that's the only way to overcome it. And we've been describing that love as a supernatural, unconditional love, not dependent on circumstances. So we're in the application portion of the book of Romans. Paul has told us about God's righteousness. He's provided it. And for those that have experienced it, what does it look like in everyday circumstances? It starts with our relationship with God. And that's not only the beginning, but the foundation for everything else. If we have that in order, if we are living sacrifices In other words, totally yielded, given over to to the Lord, available to him in every way, then that will naturally transition into a right response within the body of Christ and in relationship to the church. 
And I see verses 3 through 21 dealing with those relationships. So that's where we're at now. And uh, that'll spill over. Our relationship with the Lord will have an effect on how we live in the culture, in society. And that's, I think, the focus of chapter 13. And it'll help also in the full range of relationships. We are free in Christ. We have Christian liberty but uh, that liberty needs to be moderated in uh, different kinds of relationships depending on the other person. So 14 through the middle of chapter 15, Paul will deal with with that. So we are in uh, the passage dealing with the exercise of love within the church, within uh, relationships that involve brothers and sisters, We've already looked at 9 through 13, verses 9 through 13 in chapter 12. And I've kind of separated these mainly based on the grammar and maybe not so much strictly speaking those outside of the church, but at least those that we have conflict with. Some may be within the church, but most of our conflicts would be with the world in which we live in. So I've kind of given the distinction Uh, verses 9 through 13 within the church, and then 14 through 21 outside of the church. And the first part of that, the emphasis is in suffering. That's the portion that we've already looked at. We completed that last time, 14 and 16. And now more specific suffering, situations that are very overt, very difficult, uh, the most difficult of circumstances where we have a tendency to react and to respond in revenge, 17 through 21. That's the passage we're in. We looked at 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And I've been drawing out applications from these passages. How do you do that? In other words, how do we respond rightly our natural, our flesh wants to pay back, wants to react, wants to respond in a negative way. It's totally unnatural to respond in the way that Paul has described. That's why I've uh, described this as doing the impossible. And the impossible is not only not reacting, but even going the next step of establishing peace. And that's uh, verse 18. So we will look at even going beyond that in terms of 19 through 20. And that's where we'll pick up. But let me remind you of some of the applications we drew. These are on your outline sheet, although only numbered. You can jot them down. But how do you do this? How do you do the impossible? This is not what comes from the flesh. And it starts, we said last time, with a consistent walk. In other words, you have to have a pattern of responding in the spirit. In other words, being sensitive in everyday situations. In other words, just the ordinary walk of the Christian in everyday circumstances. If you have a consistent walk, it's uh, you respond in the same way. In other words, Every circumstance that arises, we're in prayer, we're in fellowship, we're seeking, well, how do I respond to this little circumstance? I want to do what God wants me to do in this circumstance. It's easy. I can do it, but I am still in fellowship and still seeking what the Lord would have. So you have to have kind of a background so it doesn't come automatic. In fact, uh, what comes automatic is what the flesh will dictate. So I think it begins with a consistent Christian walk. And then when you are thrust into that circumstance, that's when you offer up an emergency, and I'm just saying an emergency prayer, kind of, okay, I'm in the middle of this. Lord, help me with this. I I still want to maintain that consistent Christian walk. I still want to respond rightly. I want to do what you want me to do. So I need to be reminded. And one of the things that reminds us We saw this in the passage when he says in uh, verse 17, respect what is right in the sight of all men. We can apply that. I drew the application. Uh, The person that's responding to us in this negative way, 
there's some reasons for it. We may not know all of them. We may know some of them, but uh, it's coming out of a need within them. And obviously, if they're an unbeliever, they need salvation. They need the Lord. So we talked about the needs of and took the suggestion and put the enemy in quotation, not that they're necessarily enemy. They may even be brothers in Christ, but enemy in the sense that they are either attacking or doing something that is negative in our experience. So the first thing that we think of is, why is this person responding this way? What is the need? What what do they need? And if it's salvation, then we want to think in terms of how can I respond such that maybe I may be able to present the gospel in this situation. So we applied the passage in that way. That's the proper response. That's the doing of the impossible. That would be what the Lord would have us. And that's what it says when we uh, get further into the text. If possible, we uh, try to make peace. Another thing that we do is we see if there's something that we have contributed such that this person is responding in this way. And maybe there's forgiveness that needs to be asked for. So is there any personal part? Is there misunderstanding that needs to be clarified? Whatever my part may be, that's part of responding rightly. And then you attempt resolution. That's verse 18. If possible, at least it's an attempt And we looked at the if possible aspect, Paul being realistic. Not every circumstance can be resolved. And some, in fact, many circumstances are beyond our ability to resolve. But if there's anything that we can do, then uh, that is what the Lord calls upon us. So never take your own revenge, verse 19 And then he adds the beloved, knowing that this is not not an easy thing. So he wraps his arms around us, you might say, takes us by the hand, calls us beloved, recognizing uh, this relationship, emotionally attaching himself, because this is an emotionally explosive situation. So he includes the beloved there. Now, would somebody look up? Second Timothy that kind of lays the groundwork. We've looked up all the other parallel passages at the bottom there. Somebody look up Second Timothy three twelve. This gives us kind of a an expectation. Now in our culture, we have never experienced this in our nation, except on very isolated and in some cases very minor ways. Anyone have 2 Timothy 3? Yeah, I do. There's Katie. Go ahead. 2 Timothy. And indeed. 2 Timothy 3.12. Go ahead and read it. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay. Well, how come we don't get persecuted? Why are we left out? Maybe we're not living godly, or maybe we have uh, additional grace that some... In fact, the the majority of believers throughout history have not been given. So this is an expectation. This is what we should expect. And we may enter an age and a period where we see more and more of that. So never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath the New American Standard adds of God. It's it's not as explicit in the Greek text. Now, I think it's accurate in adding the wrath of God because of what follows, but some commentators talk about a different kind of wrath that may be involved in, but I think we won't take the time to go into all the possibilities there. Leave room for the wrath of God. So the first thing that we need to think upon in the midst of this is God is still sovereign. God is still at work. God is, in fact, working in time and in history to effect justice. And that's the essence of what follows there. So the way we applied this is we can trust in a sovereign and holy and just God 
no matter what the circumstance. Steve, go ahead. Yeah, that that word leave is really highlighted because it's that aorist imperative. So it's it's a word in this whole passage that really stands out, leave. Okay, I'm not sure that that's it. I'm not, let's see, let me look up what I've got here. Check me on that. You are absolutely, yeah, yeah you're right. It, it is an aorist imperative. We've got a Greek student's student, another one. Yeah, and that's a strong command. An aorist imperative is the strongest way that you can exhort. Very good. Good observation. Excellent. I don't know how come I missed that, but good. So leave room for the wrath of God. A strong, strong command emphasizing our part, but we also, in the midst of that, have to trust the sovereign hand of God and know that there is ultimate justice and the only one qualified, the only one able to properly execute justice is God himself. What we can expect is that uh, 2 Timothy 3.12 passage, we can expect injustice in this life, in this world, and uh, we know and can trust that God ultimately will bring ultimate justice in time, and even, he may even affect it in our experience. We're not guaranteed of that, but we know that the passage follows, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, we looked at the word vengeance there. It's, this, it's the uh, same word as never take your own revenge. And in our language and in our culture, when we think of revenge, we, we think of vindictiveness. We think of all negative aspects. The Greek word really is related to justice. In other words, never take your own effecting of justice. That's the idea of the word here, both in its noun and in verb form. The noun at the first word there, uh, revenge, and then vengeance is mine, the verb form. But it has to do with, with effecting justice. Now, if somebody strikes us, if somebody says a, a word about us that is unjust, unfair, not right, our tendency is to try to make things right by effecting justice. In other words, harm done requires harm in return. Well, that's not our job. That's not what God has called us to do. He's called us to make peace, as we saw in verse 18. In fact, God is the one that effects justice. So you can uh, even translate, justice is mine, I will repay. In other words, I will effect justice. God's not a vindictive, getting even type of God, but he is a just God who will right eventually all wrongs. And there's going to be ultimate and final justice that we anticipate. But while we live in this world, in what we might even describe as the devil's world, He's the God of this world, and in that, we need to expect the uh, 2 Timothy 3.12 experience of uh, persecution, and uh, along right. with that, injustice. Jim? You know, uh, speaking for myself, uh, this sometimes is a, a really hard area to navigate. Uh, you hear this uh, this. Uh, People say, uh, well, that person's judgmental. And sometimes it's not being judgmental as, as being as disapproving or not approving of maybe, let's say, uh, uh, the, uh, the way that someone may conduct their, their lives in some way or something of that nature. Not approve, disapproval is not the same as, as judgment. I think it's a hard area sometimes to navigate. Yeah. And there's a there there is a fine line between because a lot of people take that passage in the Sermon on the Mount by our Lord in Matthew chapter seven, 
of not judging and look at it in an absolute sense. But there's lots of passages that encourage us. In fact, we have to be judging. We have to have discernment. That's what discernment is all about. Separating out right from wrong is judging, is discerning. So there is a fine line there. And uh, you're not the only one that has a hard time navigating that. I think just since I raised the Sermon on the Mount there, notice the context Jesus is talking about hypocritical judgment. In other words, you have a log in your eye and you're trying to take a speck out of your brother's eye. That's hypocrisy. In other words, you're doing even worse. And now you're judging the person that is probably rightfully wrong, but uh, you're not in a position to take it out because you don't have the proper insight or vision on the circumstance. Yeah, there is a fine line. We are to judge, though, but uh, we judge according to God's standards and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And particularly in this situation, most circumstances we need to, well, all circumstances, we don't take our own revenge. We allow the justice of God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay Now, there's lots of passages that we can look at, and let's just read some of these. I've got these on the screen. Would somebody else care to read? I know Connie's got her microphone open. Do you want to read Isaiah 13, 9? Sure. Talking about God's justice, and in this context, this would be an expression of how God uh, works it out, how he repays, and how he affects it. Go ahead, Connie. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. Okay, that is the effecting of vengeance, the effecting of justice, and is described as cruel. Now, there's no sin, but uh, I think what Isaiah or God is saying here is that it is very severe with fury. In other words, it, it has even uh, display with it or visible expressions of it, burning anger, wrath. That's wrath. He will exterminate. Very strong language. This is vengeance. This is God. Now, this is ultimate, and this is eventual, and God has expressed this in time as well, in some of the past historical events relating to some of the nations. But this is a strong description of what God will do. And this is holy. This is pure. This is what God must do in effecting justice. Someone, uh, Sharon's got her mic open. You want to read First Thessalonians 1.10. This is a New Testament passage describing vengeance. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now, there is wrath to come. Notice the passage talks about wrath. There's a future wrath, and this is to the believer. We wait for the Son, and in this context, we need to be reminded of passages like this First Thessalonian passage. There's also a Second Thessalonian passage that describes the similar attitude that we need to take. Someone want to take that one. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. So they are suffering. The Thessalonians were under persecution. So he reminds them of this vengeance, of this judgment that is that is coming and this is what we need to be reminded of. We don't need to affect it. We need to endure the injustice. And if God is pleased to effect it in our experience immediately, then we can praise him. But we can praise him anyway because he's going to affect it ultimately. Read verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who... 
who do not obey the gospel. There, oh, there it is. <laughs> who do not obey the gospel. Okay. Yeah, I've got it at the bottom of the slide. It may not show up on all of your your uh, screens there. So this is again to the Thessalonians, to the believers that are being persecuted, uh, for which indeed you are suffering, present tense, and it's up to God, and it's just. It's only just for God to repay. That's the effecting of justice. And God will ultimately and eventually make all things right. And that's that's our hope. And only the believer has that hope. But we need to be reminded of it. And only when we are walking in the Spirit will these passages come to mind. In fact, this consistent walk that I started our applications on here is being prepared ahead of time, like studying passages like what we're doing here, so that we be reminded of not only the Romans 12 passage, but the Second Thessalonians 1, the First Thessalonians passage as well, the Old Testament passages. We study these things and learn them in order to prepare for that momentary rapid-fire occasion when uh, uh, we may even be caught off guard. Now we have a resource and our memory can remind us in the spirit and the Holy Spirit can remind us that uh, we have a different way of responding. So we trust the sovereignty and we endure. So application number seven, we endure the injustice, waiting at least for the ultimate dealing with sin that God will bring about, and uh, perhaps even in time may resolve the problem. So verse 20, we don't stop with just, if possible, we don't stop with just attempting to resolve it with peace, but we even take the next step. This is even more impossible in the midst of being abused, in the midst of someone persecuting us, but if your enemy is hungry, feed him. In other words, we actually do positive acts of goodness. Now, he takes a passage and he's combining these passages. That last passage, the Deuteronomy 32:35, was the one uh, that was written as it is written, vengeance is mine. That comes out of Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. It's only part of the passage. And then he sticks it with another passage in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 25, verses 21 through 22. So this is wisdom. This comes out of the wisdom literature. And this, it takes wisdom to respond rightly. In fact, uh, this reminds us of James, if anyone lacks wisdom in the midst. In other words, count it all joy, my brethren, when you experience various trials Then uh, the next verse there, if you lack wisdom, it takes wisdom. This is the wisdom, a positive response, a, a response of goodness, not only understanding or knowing the needs of the enemy, but even uh, assuming whatever is needed at the moment, supplying that need. And even if we don't know what the need is, we do good. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. And notice it uses the word enemy in this context. And we could apply that, reminds us of the word, and we need to call to memory all of these passages, uh, like the Proverbs passage, the Deuteronomy passage, the 1 Thessalonians, the 2 Thessalonians passage, and many, many others as well. In fact, the entire book of 1 Peter. So when you study 1 Peter, it is building a resource in your mind and in your soul and in your consistent walk to recall on occasions like this. And the passage just goes on. If he is thirsty, very vivid, very practical, very everyday things that we can do. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Ray, can you please tell us what the uh, scripture a reference to James. Well, she started quoting it, but I couldn't find it. James and I don't 1, know where it's found. James 1, I think it's verse, I was quoting it by memory. I think it's verse 3. Right. 
James five, one five. One five. All right. Five and six. Good. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Four. In so doing, in other words, overt real actions, and when that happens, notice what will happen. In fact, uh, I think this is related to the vengeance part. God is already in the middle of this situation with can and already is beginning the process of repaying, you might say. You will heap burning coals on his head. Almost a, a very interesting passage. Any suggestions what uh, he might be suggesting here? Well, Ray, I've heard it ex- suggested in other Bible studies that um, at the time, if someone's fire had gone out and they needed to start a new fire, they would go to a neighbor for embers. And so this was actually a good thing to keep burning coals into something they carried on their head. You were doing him a service by helping him to restart his fire. Yeah. The only problem is pouring it on his head. (laughs) Right. Right. Was carrying it in some sort of thing on his head. I don't know. Yeah. The explanation I've heard. Yeah. That's a, that's a suggestion. It, It is a difficult passage. And commentators are all over the place on it as well. There is a kind of an obscure reference that I saw in one of the commentators to an Egyptian practice that the very thing that you were describing was done. And that may be the reference that they're, they're, they're talking about, where you would carry on your own head in a pan, obviously, burning coals in order to supply for someone else. Probably the best understanding here is it's something like you will start a fire within someone such that their conscience is raised and that diffuses the situation. And when you do good, this is so surprising, so unusual, so out of character for humanity, for mankind. Instead of repaying evil, for their evil, you do the very opposite and it catches them so off guard, it would be like you poured burning coals and started their hair on fire. That may be what Paul is indicating here. And if not immediately, it at least reminds the one bringing the coals that God eventually is going to bring very, very hot judgment and hot coals in an ultimate sense. It may not be immediate. So that's verse 20. So the application is pretty pretty obvious. We, we think of, as we're reminded of passages like the Proverbs passage and quoted by Paul in the Romans 12 passage, we do acts of goodness. And uh, that will cause a, an unusual response in the person involved there. So the emphasis on victory. Jim, go ahead. Is it possible that the the heaping the coals of fire on their head is describing the vengeance that God takes? Yeah, uh, that's a suggestion some uh, commentators make, that it's suggesting what God is ultimately going to do. It seems like it fits the context. That's why I thought. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's a good suggestion. And I think it goes right along with God acting, and it may be like God, you're initiating God, and you're, you're uh, not standing in the way of God acting in terms of bringing about his justice that is like a burning fire in the passages that we looked at. Mm-hmm. Mr. Mondragon, I, I think of that too, as Norman, but... I think of us as being part of God's crew as the royal family of God. And if people are attacking us, then they're not attacking us, are they? No. We want to, as a part of his crew, like in an old man of war, we want to clear the decks for action, lift up the walls of the ship so the cannon are exposed so that God can command whatever he wants. Yeah, we're judging. If we're judging, we're in the way, like those walls on the sides of the ship that they had to move out of the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and now we can just wait and see what happens. Exactly. Very good. Uh, 
good uh, point there. Then analogy. it concludes the chapter. Let's see, who else? Connie, was it? I just said analogy. I thought that's what you were looking for. Yeah, very good. Good analogy. 21 is the last verse here. Kind of a summary of what he has talked about from verse 17, if not the whole chapter. Do not be overcome, because he even starts earlier, even in uh, verse 9. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. And then 14, bless those who persecute you, bless, curse not. And certainly 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. And kind of a summary all the way back to verse 9, do not be overcome by evil. Now, the word there is niko in the Greek text there. What does that remind you of niko? Nike, does that strike a bell? Corporate, Nike Corporation takes its uh, name and theme from that overcoming or victory, the idea of victory in other contexts. In other words, do not be uh, overcome or unvictorious by evil, but rather overcome, same word, evil with good. And that's how he somewhat concludes this passage. And this is the ultimate way that we overcome. And in this context, that's why I've titled the whole thing and your outline sheets, Love Overcomes Revenge. And this is how we overcome with uh, acts of goodness and concern for the other rather than protecting our own interests trying to resolve our own injustice. So we could apply this by just a persistent walk, a persistence in terms of performing good. It's not going to be resolved in one act, not going to resolve immediately. This may take time. And just as Paul says, if possible, it may never be resolved. In other words, the offending party may be so far into their own sin and their own self-centeredness that they never want to resolve the situation. But that does not prevent us from continuing and persisting in good. So this is the impossible. This This is the Christian life. And even though I stress that every aspect is impossible, but this is certainly on the extreme end of impossibility. How do you respond in the midst of persecution? And we may be called upon to have to respond in this way as our culture continues to degenerate and fall further and further from the Lord Jesus Christ. Any other comments or questions on the passage before we go into a quick introduction to chapter 13? Mary Lee, or was that Bill? That's me. I was just thinking of the exhortation that Paul gives uh, in one of his other letters, that we are to shine like stars in the midst of a dark and perverse generation. And the darker the night, the easier it is to see the beauty of the stars. When there's a lot of light around, whether it's artificial light or whatever, you don't see the stars. But when you get out in the desert with uh, no moon, when the moon's out, you can't see the stars very well. But on a dark night, the stars just gleam and glisten in the sky. And and you're so aware of them where otherwise you might not even know they were there. Yep. And those good works stand out in the the more extreme the persecution, the more those, pers- those persistent good works stand out. Very good analogy and illustration. And that reminded me that in the culture in which we live in, also in the Sermon on the Mount, we are salt. We're, we're the preservatives. We are the only thing that is keeping the culture in which we live in totally going out of control, as is described during the Great Tribulation. So as long as we are here on earth, we are the preservatives of the culture. And uh, then the next passage, as Mary Lee has pointed out, we are the light. We are the lights as well in a dark, dark world. So that's chapter 12. And let me just give you a quick 
introduction to what I would like to do when we get into the next passage. And it's a, another subdivision in our main division here, the application of God's righteousness. That's the division there from 12.1 through 15.13. We looked at the subdivision of verses 1 and 2. What does righteousness lived out look like in relationship to God? Well, the way it looks like, you can't see it. You lay yourself using the visible image of a sacrifice laid on an altar, made available, ready to do whatever God desires, relinquishing our own life, giving our own life over to God, allowing him to use us in whatever means he would so desire. And within the church, the application that we've just completed, chapter 12, 3 through the end of chapter 12, it looks like the expressing of gifts, the exercise and the living out of gifts. That's how you can see it as people minister to one another in their gifts and a variety of ways of expressing love. Those two aspects we developed in terms of the application to the church, that love aspect beginning in verse nine, all the way to the extreme case of loving those that actually persecute us and that ended in verse 21. And now he's going to apply it to a broader circle, you might say, outside of the church and society in general. And he starts a discussion in relationship to government and its submission. In other words, what does it look like? It looks like submitting to the authority. And it's very, very broad in terms of it doesn't matter what kind of government, whether it's a dictatorship or whether, you know, it's totalitarian and or it is a republic, even though we're drifting away from that aspect of our, our nation and our, our country. And the further that we depart from that, the more difficult it will be. But the passage encourages us all the same. And verse 1 of chapter 13, I'm just going to highlight the beginning here. Every, literally, suke. You Greek students, what does suke mean? Isn't that soul? Soul. Psyche? Well, it's our word psyche comes from that, but soul. Every soul. Now, I won't go into detail, but this is kind of a Hebrew idiom or at least a common usage of the word in the first century and in the Greek language referring to the whole person. And then it's modified with all or every, every person. That's why it's translated that way. And I think it's put at the very beginning to kind of emphasize that there's no exceptions. This is the general rule. Those of you that use computers, do you have a default setting when you open up a Word document? If, it, if your default setting, you have certain settings for fonts and font size, etc. This is the default setting for virtually every circumstance. Now, we'll talk later on about when is it impossible to do this? But basically, the general principle, the, the general command, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Now, I'm not going to exegete it in detail this morning. I'm just going to give you an, an introduction to it. But that's the principle that controls everything, at least through verse 7, if not even beyond that in chapter 13. And by the way, chapter 13 is the shortest chapter in all of the book of Romans by far. So we'll get through this hopefully. But I want to spend some time with this issue because of its timeliness and also because of its difficulty and also because I think this principle, even though in 13 applies to the relationship of government, I think the principle is broader, particularly verses 1 and 2 in terms of all authority, for there is no authority, and 
in that he's including not just government, but authority overall. There's no authority except from God and those who those which exist are established by God. Very strong, very clear statement. Not a complicated passage, but again, impossible to fully implement in our various uh, relationships. So I'm going to camp on that idea, for there is no authority that includes not only government, but all of the authorities and all of the institutions that are designed with authority. I'd like to broaden it, and we'll look at it on a broader basis. So that would include the authority that God has set up within the family, the authority that God has set up within the church, the authority that God has set up in terms of employment and employers or master-slaves. That's a relationship that the New Testament develops. Or I think the immediate context, 13, 1 through 7, I think primarily the application is to government. So let me give you a quick overview, and then uh, we'll move into a time of prayer of what I'd like to cover as we get into the passage, and we'll start with uh, most of this next week. Number one, we need to review the context of the Roman Empire in order to, to realize that it It doesn't matter what the government that one person is under, this applies. This is broad-based. This is the default position. In other words, this is what is expected of the believer. Those that are regenerated, those that have the Spirit of God, those that know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what our responsibility and what God expects of us. And we'll review this because there's some parallels between the Roman Empire in the first century and our culture, but we'll also stress the idea that it doesn't matter what culture. And some of the things we'll review, we'll talk about the Roman Empire, the government, the form of government in the first century. I'll give you a little background there. We'll also discuss the Roman Empire and its treatment of Jews, I think an understanding of that will enhance our understanding of Romans 13. And very simply, uh, the Roman Empire really allowed a considerable amount of freedom to the Jews. In fact, uh, they probably allowed more, more freedoms to the Jewish people than they did to other peoples that existed in other parts of the Roman Empire. And we need to look at the Jewish attitude towards the Roman Empire. And it's not a positive attitude that in general was held. In fact, uh, Jesus had to kind of correct and uh, reorient the thinking of the Jewish leaders that he had contact with. So we'll look at some of those passages as well as something of an introduction to Romans 13. So I'd like to look at that. And we also need to consider, because we're talking about the church age, Romans 13 is written to the church, not to Judaism. And But you need to understand in the first century the, the relationship between the church and Judaism and uh, why Paul is writing what he says in Romans 13. And uh, that'll, that brings us to the context of Romans 13, the cultural context, the historical context of Romans 13, and how it will be important to understand that to enhance our understanding of the passage itself. So in our overview, we'll take a look at the Roman Empire, context of the Roman Empire in the first century. I'll give you the context briefly of Romans 13, within the broader book of Romans, the context of the passage itself. I'll give you a brief overview of the passage. That won't take too long, kind of a brief outline of the passage. And here's that brief outline. Uh, I'll go into a little more detail uh, later, but you can break it down into three parts. Uh, Submission to authority and particularly government authority, verses 1 through 7, 
and love of the citizens. Notice he goes back to the concept of love, but it's in a different context. We saw love within the church in chapter 12, and he goes back to that topic beginning in verse 8 through 10, but here it's in that broader context of citizens within the society or the culture. And then he closes chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, motivation for living alertly. And we need to be discerning and alert in uh, the culture in which we live in using wisdom. And I think that's a theme of 11 through 14. So those are the three parts that we'll look at. And then as we work our way through, what I want to deal with are some major principles that will be developed uh, from the passage. For example, I want to do a, a kind of a little extended study on the importance of authority, kind of the biblical doctrine of authority itself. And the passage brings out the origin of it and the basis for it right there in the very first verse. So we'll look at that. We'll talk about the need of submission on our part. So we'll talk about the word for submission and the different context where it occurs. The passage also talks about the role of government. In other words, what is the design that God has for government? What is God's intention? And what is the design, the biblical design for government? Not many governments fulfill the plan that God has for them, but uh, that has nothing to do with the nature and character of God. But uh, it's good to know the role of government as well. And we want to spend some time is when is it impossible to obey the government? Are there circumstances when uh, we have to say no? And we, we have some biblical examples in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, for example, and also in uh, the New Testament that give us a little bit of guidance in uh, the book of Acts in the New Testament. So when do we disobey? These are some principles that we'll look at as we weave our way through these seven passages. And we might even, if we have time, discuss the, the place of activism. When do we, and to what extent are we to exercise political activism? So this is, this is kind of the intent that I have in uh, going through these first seven verses. Uh, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, and we'll expand all of that. Uh, there's no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So that brings us to our last slide. Just a reminder, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to live the impossible Christian life. Any comments before we go into prayer here? Why don't you pray as you feel led? Lord, we thank you for your watch care over Janie and her drive as she drove from Paulden Springs to Phoenix. Um, we praise you and thank you for the Chafer Conference that is coming up. Uh, we pray that as the organizers uh, move forward with meetings and plannings, that that would go smoothly, that you would have your hand on the technology that uh, will allow uh, many to see it uh, electronically, um, that you would prepare the speakers, Lord, and just that they would be teaching what it is your spirit is leading them to teach. As we've been talking about today, as Mary Lee prayed, we uh, it appears we are embarking on a season of... Uh, persecution. And um, we need to know how to live that way uh, in a way that honors you. Thank you, Lord, for preparing us in advance.